Okay, we've prayed, we've read the Bible, let's have a think about it together. Um, Kevin, when he began tonight, said that he didn't study marketing, that he studied engineering, and therefore he uh, then went on to dissect the uh, advertising campaign for tonight. Uh, I, um, I studied commerce at university and dabbled in with a little bit of marketing. And you wouldn't know it from the first talk tonight, would you? I, I don't think that I marketed the Christian life very attractively. Uh, I, I, I said, I think, if I remember rightly, I offered you possible shame, probable suffering and definite persecution and said, this is great, let's do it. Hard to market, isn't it? But it's reality, isn't it? If you want to live a gospel-shaped life, that's what you are stepping up for and people will think you're crazy to take it on. Why would anyone choose that? Why would anyone choose to let the gospel shape their life? Isn't life hard enough as it is? Just getting the kids through the HSC, just, you know, surviving, staying married. Isn't life hard enough already? And yet, you'd bring more suffering on yourself, you'd, you'd bring persecution on yourself, shame. Why would you do it? These two talks that I'm giving tonight are not really self-improvement talks, are they? I haven't really given you, you know, three steps to a happier life. Four keys to, you know, enjoying Christianity more. What I want to do in these talks, and I think what the Apostle Paul is doing in these two chapters that we're looking at, is painting the big picture of what life is all about. The big picture of what the Christian life is all about, which really is what life is all about. And rather than give you a few practical tips on how to have a mildly better life, what I would like you to go home with is a really clear view of what the Christian life is all about in its biggest picture form. Now, I hope you will go away from tonight with a few practical things to think about, to change, to apply to your life. Uh, but more importantly, I want you to go away tonight totally clear, really clear on the big picture of what God is doing in his world and where you fit into that. The big picture of Christ and us and how we fit in there. So, this talk is going to, uh, in, in this passage, Paul paints a big picture and we need to have a look at it. Let's get into it. Chapter 2 is really helpful in 2 Timothy because the first three verses are almost like a summary of chapter 1. Uh, so, let's have a look at the first three verses and really they describe the task at hand that we've, we've already seen. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus... And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Can you see the similarities? Can you see the summarising of chapter 1? Let's go through it, those three things. Firstly, Timothy needs to be strengthened for the task by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we saw it in chapter 1, didn't we? It's, it's not Timothy muscling up on his own. It's Timothy being strengthened by Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, to do the job at hand. All right, then what's the job at hand? Well, it's guarding the gospel, passing it on faithfully. That's what we see in verse 2, isn't it? Let me remind you again of verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's the guarding the gospel, passing it on faithfully. The truth is, is guarded by being passed on reliably to reliable people. Did you notice how many generations there were in that little verse? It doesn't feel like many, but there are actually 
four generations being talked about in just that little verse. Um, Paul to Timothy, two generations. Timothy is to then entrusted on to reliable or faithful men, that's the third generation, who will then be able to teach others, that's the fourth generation. The gospel goes forward that way, doesn't it? And, and where we come in, I guess, is generation number 3,400. We're somewhere there, aren't we? We're, we're, we're in that chain somewhere of people who faithfully passed it on year by year, generation by generation. That's the way that the gospel is guarded. It's by faithfully passing it on to reliable people. So humanly speaking, the key to guarding the truth is faithful or reliable people, isn't it? Who pass it on faithfully and reliably. And what then happens if faithful and reliable men pass it on faithfully and reliably is that generation after generation get to hear the good news about Jesus, his death for them and their sins, his resurrection from the dead, and they get to have life through that gospel word. And if it doesn't happen, people are robbed of the truth and robbed of the opportunity to find life, forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. Uh, the stakes are high, it matters, and we saw that's why the third bit of the task comes into play. At verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Again, we saw it in chapter 1. Paul invites Timothy to share his sufferings and we've seen that it's a fairly attractive invitation, isn't it? Come and suffer with me, Paul says. That's the invitation. Come and share in my sufferings. And in a sense, I think here, suffering is the natural outworking of the, of the two that we've just looked at. One plus two equals three. A plus B equals C. Uh, strengthened by the grace of Jesus to pass on the gospel reliably equals suffer with me. That's how it's going to happen. Um, let's just stop for a moment though there and think about why the suffering is going to come. Why will passing on the gospel faithfully lead to suffering? Let's explore that in a little bit more detail. The answer in a nutshell is human sin, isn't it? Human sin. That is why the passing on of the gospel will lead to suffering. Because, well, in our sin, we humans don't want to hear the truth about God. Listen to how Romans 1 speaks about humanity's rejection of God. Romans 1, from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is what we do in our sin. We suppress the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We want to avoid the truth. We suppress the truth. That's, that's in, in a sense, sin at its base level is wanting to ignore the truth. Now, which truth is on view here? We better keep going. Verse 19. The truth for what can be known about God. It's the truth about God. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. God has revealed himself plainly and truly and in our sin, we humans don't want to hear the truth about God. We want to avoid it. We want to suppress it. Sinful humans reject the truth about God because it exposes our sin, doesn't it? So this reminds us that the war on truth has been a long battle. It's not just, you know, 
modern atheism that uh, has rejected God's truth. It's not just newfangled postmodernism that has rejected God's truth. Humanity has been good at rejecting God's truth for a long time. The truth about God has been challenged and rejected by sinful humans ever since Adam and Eve sided with the serpent against God's truth. And the war continues today as sinful people continue to reject the truth about God and oppose the people who are going to stand for that truth. We saw this a few years ago. I think uh, you as a church were involved with the Jesus All About Life campaign. You were involved as a church, yeah? Um, It was kind of not the most offensive thing we could have said uh, all over the newspapers and all over the media, is it? Jesus All About Life. It's not the most confronting Christian advertisement you you could come up with, is it? You could have come up with a lot more confronting... Now, interestingly, when the, um, when the campaign was on, uh, I was listening to talkback radio and it was being spoken about. And someone actually rang in to complain about it and said, don't we have truth in advertising standards in Australia? <laughs> How can Christians possibly say that Jesus is all about life? Now, I couldn't think of a gentler way of putting it. People oppose the truth about God because that truth makes sinful people very uncomfortable. We live in the midst of a war on truth. The Bible tells us that people don't like the truth about God, want to suppress that truth. And if you take your place as a soldier in the war, if you take your place as one who is guarding the truth by knowing that gospel well, and passing it on faithfully, reliably by speaking it to others, well, you'd better get prepared for people to start shooting at you. If you guard the truth, people will attack it and you. So, the gospel needs to be guarded. For that to happen, Timothy is strengthened by the grace of God. He's got to entrust the gospel to reliable men and he's got to share in suffering as he does it. That's the task at hand. Now, Paul has some very interesting advice about how to do it. So let's have a look at it. Paul's advice is in the form of three professional illustrations. Paul uses the example of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer to illustrate his advice. But my big question is, what is Paul illustrating? Three examples of what? That's what we're trying to work out. Have a look at it. Let's read it together. Verses 3 to 7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. All right, well, the promise there is, if we consider what Paul says, the Lord will give us understanding in everything. So, what are these three examples of? I'm going to throw it out to you. There's the question up on the screen. What is the point that Paul is making in these examples? What, what, what is the point he's making through these examples? You've got 30 seconds with the person next to you. Enjoy the discussion. Go for it.
Okay, I'm going to collect some answers. Um, now, this is a bit scary, collecting answers, because it's a bit tricky, this question. It's a bit hard. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to collect possibilities. Uh, okay, you don't need to be right here. I just want to collect some possibilities. I won't hold you to your answer. What are the possibilities that these three examples are exemplifying? Who wants to help us out? I know it's a challenge. Who's going to get us away? Opening bid? Being undivided. Being undivided. Excellent start. Good. What else? Did other people have other possibilities? Focused. Focused. Excellent. Yeah. If if you start telling the audience what they want to hear, all right, I've got to think if I'm doing that or if I, I don't know if I want to agree with you or not on that statement. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Other possibilities. Perseverance. It's going to take perseverance. Yep. Other possibilities? They're all working for a goal. Yes. Obedience. There's a lot of possibilities here, aren't there? Yeah. Okay. Well, what's the text going to tell us? We're going to have to look a bit harder, aren't we? Because we've got all these possibilities, but the Bible text should give us the clues. We're going to have to look a bit more closely. Um. Some people say that they look at the soldier. What is the soldier? He, he is, uh, well, he seems to be single-minded. He doesn't get entangled in the concerns of the civilian life. Single-minded, focus, that kind of idea. Um, is the athlete focused? He probably is. We're not, we're not really told about it, but we know athletes have to be focused. Uh, is the farmer focused? Well, yeah, he must be, but we're not told about it, are we? Interesting. All right, what about, uh, well, some people say they're examples of hard work. The farmer is called, in the text, a hard-working farmer. We know that soldiers are hard-working, right? We know they work hard. But is that what the soldier is illustrating? Is the athlete, we know they work hard, but again, it's interesting because we often go for the, the sort of possibilities, but what I want you to do, I want you to have a look again. The same verses with the person next to you. Is there one clear thing that we can say the Bible text makes clear about all three examples? Is there one that's, that's clear in each example? Is there one way we can summarise the same thing in each one? Because I know that we can, we can put words into the mouth. We can say they're hardworking, they're all hardworking. We can say they're all single-minded. We can say they're all... But the Bible passage doesn't. How would we describe what the Bible passage does? Is there one point that Paul might be making from these three examples? Go for it. You've got 30 seconds again.
Okay, let's have a think about it together. Let's come on back together. Did you, did you see something there? Eh? Saw something? All right. There is one common feature that is in all three examples. That common feature is the end goal. And the end goal shapes the present behaviour, doesn't it? The activities in each profession are shaped by the end goal that they are working for. This, why doesn't the soldier get himself entangled in civilian affairs? Because he has the end goal of wanting to please his commanding officer. Why, doesn't the, why does the athlete compete according to the rules? Because he has the end goal of the crown, wanting to wear the crown. Um, the hard-working farmer, what does he, why does he work the way he does? So that he can share the end goal of sharing in the fruits of the harvest. In all three examples, the end goal is on view. Now, David Wise, you might be feeling ripped off because you mentioned that in the first, uh, first lot of examples. So I deliberately didn't go with you uh, there. I should have uh, avoided you even more. In, in all three examples... <laughs> in all three examples, the end goal shapes the present behaviour, doesn't it? Now, how does that relate to our passage, what we're thinking about? How do these examples help us? That's what we need to work out in point three. Remember Jesus Christ. That's our next point. Remember Jesus Christ. See, trailing hot on the heels of those three examples, we have this weird command in verse eight. Have a look at it with me. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David, this is according to my gospel. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, some of the other translations say. Why? Why keep your attention on Jesus Christ? Why remember Jesus Christ? Why at this point does Paul want Timothy to remember Jesus Christ? And what particular aspect of Jesus' life should Timothy particularly call to mind? Did you notice verse 8 kind of... It's a little bit weird, isn't it? Paul tells Timothy the thing that he needs to remember is Jesus Christ raised from the dead and a descendant of David. And Paul says, as my gospel proclaims. Now, is it just me? Or are you a little bit surprised that Paul singles out those two parts of his gospel. Are they, are, they, are they the parts of the gospel that you expect the Apostle Paul to say, okay, remember Jesus and particularly these two things? Is it just me or are they a little bit weird? We know that Paul understands the gospel. And we know that he, he, he can write about the gospel. Let me just prove it to you. We'll put it up on the screen. The classic example is 1 Corinthians 15. And now I would remind you, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And he goes on to explain it, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to, and he goes off and lists lots and lots of people that Jesus appeared to. So we know that the Apostle Paul can do a normal gospel. But this one just seems a little bit less normal, right? Descended from David, raised from the dead. 
What is going on? Why those two things? Something very important is going on and the clue to it is what those two things symbolise. So, I promised you that I'd uh, give you a little bit of a harder question in this talk. So, I think my questions in the first talk were a little bit easy. For those of you who wanted a harder question, I think this is it, up on the screen. Resurrection and Davidic descent equals question mark. You need to find the question mark. I'll give you a whole 30 seconds. How's that sound? Fair? Great, go. Okay, there's a bit of a lull. We've sort of run out of puff. Yeah. That was a really tricky question. Uh, let's unpack it together. Can you think of anywhere else in the New Testament where those two things collide? Where those two things are the two things on view? Can you think of anywhere else? Does anyone want to stick up a hand and say, yeah, I, can th I think they're here? Pete? Romans 1, they come up. Very good. Romans 1, anywhere else? Acts 2. And I'm not sure they uh, come up in many other passages, but in both those passages, I think they're doing the same thing as here. So we're going to unpack one of those passages, Acts 2. It's the clearest. Tell us what those two things mean. So I'd love it if you'd flick over to uh, Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. That'd be great. And I'd love to read from verse 29 to uh, about verse 33. Acts 2 from verse 29. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn on oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Okay, where are we? We are at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. We're very early after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter has stood up to speak of the great Old Testament messianic hope. He's speaking to Jewish people who are gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover weekend. The Holy Spirit has been given the apostles have been speaking in different tongues, different languages of all the, all the people, all the Jewish people who are there from all the dif their, different la their different lands. 
And in, in verse 31, Peter starts explaining using David as, in a sense, his mouthpiece. He said David was speaking prophetically about the resurrection of the Christ. Christ, you know, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Christ, the Messiah, is the chosen king, God's chosen king. Now, notice the Messiah had to be a descendant of David because God had promised that he would place one of David's descendants on the throne eternally. But in order to reign eternally, you need to be able to live eternally, don't you? So there had to be a resurrection. So Davidic descent and resurrection from the dead come together and mean only one very clear thing. This is the Messiah. This is the one raised by God to rule over all the earth as God had always promised. So uh, Peter sums it up in, I guess, verse 36 is the clearest statement. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Davidic descent and resurrection from the dead speak without a doubt that this guy is the Messiah. He reigns over all the earth. He is the great world ruler. So can you see why Paul in 2 Timothy 2 only mentions these two aspects of his gospel? It's because Davidic descent and resurrection from the dead indicate as clearly as you can possibly indicate that this Jesus is the Messiah Christ, that he has been raised by God to rule the world now and forevermore. So I think in, um, if you flick back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I think verse 8 is basically saying, remember that Jesus is the Messiah King who now and forevermore reigns over all the earth. Let's try and put all the pieces together. The task at hand, Timothy is to be strengthened by the grace of God, to pass on the truth to faithful men and to share in the suffering as he does so. The soldier, the athlete and the farmer, they demonstrate that what we do now should be shaped by the end goal. In verse 8, in a sense, Paul reminds us to remember that Jesus and his messianic reign is the end goal. The reign of Jesus is begun now with his resurrection and his ascension to the throne in heaven. It's begun. It will continue forevermore and that is the great end goal reality that shapes everything in this present age. That is the great end goal reality that shapes everything in life, no matter who you are or what you believe. That is the end goal reality that shapes everything. So, let's look at how this end goal shapes Paul's life. And it's fascinating because first, this end goal reality shapes Paul's life in the way he cares for others. It's the future of others in this end goal, messianic reign, that Paul works for. Look at verses 8 to 10. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. I suffer for it to the point of being bound like a criminal, but God's message is not bound. This is why I endure all things 
for the elect, so that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul endure? Paul endures all his present sufferings and hardships so that others can obtain the salvation that Jesus is offering in his eternal glory. There is the end goal shaping Paul's behaviour, but it's not for his own life, it's not for his own situation, it's for the salvation of others. It's that others might share in that glorious reign of Jesus, that end goal, that drives Paul to endure suffering right now. It's the futures of others who will have a place in that glorious reign of Jesus that pushes Paul to put up with the sufferings and to endure whatever comes his way. Now, a little, as a little side point, did you notice that Paul calls the people who will share in that reign the elect? Paul says, I endure all the suffering for the elect so that they might obtain the salvation. That idea of elect, it comes from the issue of election. It's God choosing who he will save. Now, some people come to election and they say, well, if God chooses who he will save, why bother doing evangelism? God's already chosen them, why bother? Can you see the Apostle Paul doesn't have that logic? Can you see what, read again what the Apostle Paul says? Can you see it there? This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, they're elect, God will save them, I don't need to suffer for it. He says, this is why I suffer. Because God has elected his people. They will share in the end reign. So I will suffer now, so that they obtain salvation. Don't ever think that election means you don't need to do evangelism. Learn from the Apostle Paul. The end goal, messianic reign of Christ, shapes what Paul does now for others and it shapes what he does now for himself. So let's have a look at that. that. I think that's why he finishes our little passage with this beautiful little poem in verses 11 to 13. And again, it's a little bit cryptic. Let's have a read. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Can you see that the poem follows the pattern that we've seen through this whole passage? Did you notice that as we were reading it? Our present way of living now leads to a particular reality in the future. The reality in the poem is all about the messianic reign, isn't it? Can you see that? If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. It's his messianic reign that's on view, isn't it? We'll be part of that end goal messianic reign. How? If we die with him now. If we endure. Dying with Jesus. There you go. Just in case uh, this talk was getting a little bit too attractive and Christianity was starting to look too attractive, now I'm talking about you and me dying with Jesus. Now so that we might live in the end goal, messianic reign, and reign forever. Dying with Jesus, what's it mean? Well, I think it means me and my hopes and dreams and all my human ambition dying 
for the sake of living for Christ. I die. I, I am no longer in charge of me. Jesus is in charge of me. He, he's in charge of the whole world. He's the Messiah. He reigns. I die with him now so that I live with him forever, right? You die with Jesus now so that you will live with him forever. We endure now. Notice the endure word. And what are you going to endure? You're going to endure suffering, persecution, shame. Why? So that you will reign with him. Isn't that incredible that Jesus is willing to share his messianic reign with you and with me. We will reign with him. Not just be reigned over by him, but reign with him in life forevermore. That's what being united with Christ does, doesn't it? What a special thing that he would share his reign with us. Now the last two lines of the poem are a little bit tricky, aren't they? Firstly, they remind us that many people will not share the messianic reign. Those who deny Jesus will be denied by Jesus. They will not share his messianic reign. And then the last line of the poem, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There's two ways that people understand that line. Some people say, well, if we you know, are faithless to Jesus, he'll still save us. I mean, he's faithful. Yeah. You really think that'll work? No. Jesus is not faithful to save people who reject him. Jesus is faithful to his promises. He is faithful that he will save all those who he calls to trust in him. But Jesus' faithfulness is not a commitment to save people who reject him, who don't have faith in him. That view of faithfulness is nowhere taught in the Bible and has no good support at all. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus to his word and his character, isn't it? Jesus will act perfectly faithfully according to his word and his character and he will do that by rejecting those who are faithless. I guess John 3.36, which I think is on the screen, is probably the best place to go to illustrate this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus will be perfectly faithful to both sides of that equation. Jesus will be perfectly faithful. Jesus cannot deny himself or his character. He will uphold his promises of life for those who trust him and judgment for those who refuse to trust him. And that again raises the stakes on what we're talking about tonight, doesn't it? Let's finish up. Point four, looking forward, living now. I guess this Bible passage, um, it's a life-shaping passage, isn't it? It can't not be a life-shaping passage. You can't understand this passage and not think about how it's got to shape the way you live. So, do you mind if I ask you that hard question again that I started with? What is it that shapes your life? Uh, is your life shaped by your job? Is your life shaped by your family? Is your life shaped by your hobbies? 
They are the things that shape the lives of most of the people in your suburb. But this passage offers you a radical alternative. If you're a Christian, this passage, I know it challenges your comfort zone, but it says that it is worth shaping your present life on the end goal of Christ's messianic reign. That is the great reality of life in our world. Jesus is the Messiah. He right now sits on the throne. He rules over everything and everyone. Does that shape the way that you live? Now, if you're sitting there and you're wondering, well, I don't know what shapes my life right now, can I, um, can I give you a couple of diagnostic questions? Reverse engineer the things that I just talked about. Reverse engineer that question. Um, ask yourself, uh, well... What, what do I spend my money on? Is my money shaping my life? What do I spend my money on? That'll give you a good diagnostic. That'll tell you what's shaping your life. What do I pray about? There's not a bad diagnostic either. What's the nature of your prayer? Is it Jesus and his kingdom and his glory and his gospel? Or is it you and your needs and your success? and your? That's not a bad diagnostic. How do I use my spare time? It's another good one, isn't it? That'll tell you what, what's shaping your life at the moment. You can, you can reverse engineer vir- virtually any of them. And that'll tell you what, what is presently shaping your life. But as you think about that, I want to say to you that the greatest tragedy in our world is that most people don't honour the king of all the earth. And he's been raised as the king. He's been installed as the king. He will return to judge as the king. And it's a dangerous place to be, to not honour him as the king. Most people don't even realise that great truth about our world. And the only way they will come to know that truth is through the gospel, being faithfully passed on to them. And so our world needs men and women who will make sacrifices sacrifice their time, their energy, their comfort to guard the gospel and to pass it on reliably to others. Our world is in desperate need of that. Our world is crying out for help. And you can look around and think, well, there's other people that are going to do this. Or you can face up and say, you know what? I I need to take my place in this task. The end goal reality has got to shape my life. I've got to start remembering that Jesus is the great Messiah ruling over all the earth right now and that's got to shape the way I live every day. Friends, we are the ones who understand this great reality. God in his kindness has revealed it to us in his scriptures. Most of your friends don't get it. Maybe most of your family haven't seen this. We stand in the great heritage of the gospel. We hold the gospel truth in our hands and have what the world needs. Now, um, have I got time to tell you... Uh, Kevin, 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 Kevin. Uh, when do you, how, how much time have I got? All right, let me tell you about... I was on the phone to a Zimbabwean friend on Thursday night... Tawanda, a lovely Christian man 
who is working in universities in Zimbabwe, pretty tough place to do anything right now with Mugabe still hanging around. Um, it, it always astounds me, Tawanda wants to hold the gospel and even his board that regulates his ministry on the university doesn't really want to focus on the gospel. His country is awash with Bible teachers who will tell you that God wants you to be rich and successful. Tawanda has to sit there in his university Christian group and put up with prosperity preacher after prosperity preacher coming in and speaking. He doesn't get to choose who speaks. And speaking and telling lies about what the Christian life looks like. Friends, in Sydney, we have been blessed by God in an amazing way the, the gospel heritage that we have been brought up in is an incredible privilege and almost nowhere else in all the earth has the gospel as clear as we have it in Sydney. We have theological riches and the world is theologically poor. And if that doesn't give us a responsibility, then I don't know what does. But if you look around and you say there are so many more capable people in Sydney who are better at doing this passing on the gospel thing than me, well, go to, go to Zimbabwe. <laughs> You'll be outstanding. <laughs> Choose pretty much anywhere else in the world and you probably have a better grasp of the gospel than most of the people teaching the Bible there. So we are blessed in Sydney... The world needs the gospel. I guess I want to leave it with you. What are you going to do? How are you going to play your role? If Jesus wasn't the risen Messiah right now, you know what? I reckon we should all go home and uh, just live it up because this is all there is. Uh, get a really good job. Get lots of money. Uh, just enjoy life because that's all there is. If Jesus is not the Messiah right now, that's, that's the smartest thing to do. Materialism, I think, would be be beautiful if, Je if Jesus isn't the Messiah right now. But if Jesus is the Messiah right now and forevermore, then that's got to shape everything we do, right? Have I harped on about that enough? Have you got it? I want you to go away and I want you to think through the way you live I want you to work out how the gospel, how that end goal of Jesus' messianic reign is shaping your life. And please think through how you will take your stand by the help of God with his spirit to guard the gospel and to pass it on faithfully. That's what the Christian life is all about. Let's pray. Our Father, we really are amazingly thankful for the way that you've blessed us in Sydney by preserving the gospel so clearly and so truthfully. We thank you for the men and women who've gone before us who've suffered persecution and hardship for the sake of proclaiming the gospel truthfully. And we recognise that we are in a privileged situation. Our Father, we, um, we recognise that the gospel needs to be guarded and it needs to be passed on from our generation to the next. We recognise that many places throughout the world are just crying out for the truth of the gospel and are being robbed of that gospel truth by false teaching. Our Father, 
please, work, uh, please help us to work out how we play our part in your great worldwide mission of proclaiming that gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that comes through his gospel, through his death in our place, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the throne in glory. Please help us to live as people who understand that end goal reality and who live in the present with that shaping everything we do now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three announcements from me. In a moment, we're going to have some cake and some fruit and some cheese. We'll be on a table out the front. Uh, if you haven't paid, please speak to Mark Crawford. He's got his hand up towards the back. Make sure you speak to him uh, before you go. Uh, thirdly, uh, if you're able to take a bag of rubbish with you home, uh, I think the bags will be out in the veranda. Uh, just grab one, take it home. That'll be all good. Well, I think we've been challenged from 2 Timothy to ask that question. What is it that shapes our life? And of course, it's easier to give the answer Jesus. But the question is, is how does that really shape the way that we live? Or the way, the way we speak? Or the way we live? Um, everything about what we do. And it's not easy to have Jesus at the centre, is it? It takes hard work. It takes encouragement, and I hope tonight has been an opportunity for you to be encouraged by other Christian men. And it also takes prayer, and I think a great thing uh, for us to, to finish is to pray together. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is uh, grab a couple of guys around you and spend some time praying in twos or threes or fours or fives, whatever it is. Uh, you can pray here, or you might like to go outside, whatever it is. Uh, but when you finish praying, then you can head out and enjoy your cake. But let's, uh, let's finish our time together in prayer.